Good morning, and I'm glad to see you. If you and I haven't met, uh, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Jake Patton, our other pastor. And I know we've got a lot of friends and visitors in for the baptisms. Really glad that you're here. Glad to see new faces. Welcome to downtown Presbyterian Church. And we are in a study of the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin there. There's the passage And I did this at the 8.30 service, but let me do this uh, for our service too. Just a quick word about why we like to preach through things. It's not because that's the way you have to do it. Uh, We we like to study through books and kind of take one passage at a time or one chapter at a time. There's freedom to preach in different ways. You can preach on a subject or preach on a topic. But one one reason that we as a church typically do this model is because, uh, you know, if, if Jake woke up when he's going to start a sermon he's going to preach, or I woke up, a sermon I'm going to preach, and we just kind of every week grabbed for what was on our mind. There are just some passages that we would never reach for. Uh, it's either too complicated, or it's just too jarring, or unnerving, or whatever the case. Or maybe we just haven't thought about it in a long time. But when we go through books, it helps keep us honest. It kind of holds our feet to the fire. So that's why we do that. And we're trying to make our way through at least a good chunk of this book. This is a big book, 28 chapters of Acts, but we're going to be in chapter 10 this morning, starting in verse 1. And I remember at the turn of the century, and it's weird to say that because that used to mean 1900, now it's the more recent one. There was a book that came out right around 2000, 2001, I think, called The Next Christendom. The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins. And... uh, what he was writing about was the fact that when, when people used to say Christendom, overall what that meant were Christianized parts of the world, which mostly meant, or for a long time meant, Europe and the United States. And overwhelmingly, that's not the case anymore. The church is on the decline in those areas. Europe, big time, United States more and more. And, uh, and he, he made this claim. He said, when you think of a normal Christian or a normal-looking Christian, what's your mental picture? Because if you've grown up in the church in the United States, you might picture this nice little nuclear family, and the dad's in a coat and tie, and it's a nice little white family or black family going to church in the United States. And to us, that seems like a normal Christian. And Jenkins says, increasingly what a normal Christian will look like is a non-white woman with a basket on her head walking down a dirt road. That's a normal Christian. And that stretches us because that's, that's not what we're used to. It's not what we probably grew up with. Now, just kind of use that as a comparison. If that's a stretch for us, if that's sort of a, wow, I, we would have shocked the apostles. This room would have shocked the apostles because what they were accustomed to was Christians are people who grew up Jewish and they grew up going to temple or synagogue. And they grew up hearing the law and the prophets. And they grew up hearing about the Messiah as the one that we wait on. And by God's mercy, he has opened their eyes to see that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And they believe him. And they believe that he makes all the promises come true. And that he's come and he's risen from the dead. And that we worship him. And so it would be an Eastern-looking Jewish ethnicity, man or woman, if the man he circumcised. That's a normal-looking Christian. And that's virtually no one in the room. We would, have, we would have been the outliers. 
Now, you already kind of know that's coming in Acts because the way this book begins, and I'm going to come back to this, this, this book is written by Luke, in case you don't know that, and that's the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel is like volume one, and Acts is like volume two. You've already heard Jesus at the beginning, when he's risen from the dead, say to, to the apostles, look, you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, that's where they're standing, and in Judea, the surrounding area, and Samaria, that's the neighboring area. And then he says, and then to the end of the earth, take this message all over the world. Make disciples of mine all over the world. Which means you've got to go into places and talk to people about Jesus. Now that's already, that's already set up. But it's this passage where God, you know, even as Jake said, God's the one doing everything. God's the one initiating everything, driving everything. It's in this passage where it's as if the Lord says, all right, I know that you know that I want you to talk to Gentiles. And that was a leap. But I want you to do more than that. In other words, I don't want you to just deign to speak to the uncircumcised and teach them about me. Although I do want you to do that. But I want you to go further. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that that would be three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. 
So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, this world is so big. There's so many different kinds of people. And yet, in many ways, uh, we all deep down think that we are the ones who are normal. And that our preferences and our likes are the, the normal and good preferences and likes. So much to overcome for us to love one another. So much for us to overcome to spread the good news. So we pray that your word would really show us even our own hearts. Teach us your ways, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if there's any blogs that you follow on a regular basis. There's a few that I'll peek at from time to time. Uh, and I sure don't write one myself. But uh, there's, you know, there's, there's blogs of all types. Almost any interest you might have. There's people that write about it, reflect about it. And a big genre of blogs is food. Food blogs for people that are you know, foodies or food preparation, food as art. One food writer on a food blog last year uh, noticed something that Beyonce said in one of her songs. And it's, uh, I'm not going to quote the song. Well, I'll quote one part of the song, but not, not the song as a whole. But uh, there's just this passing phrase. I think it's a couple of times in the song where Beyonce refers to, uh, I got hot sauce in my bag. Never thought I'd say those words from the pulpit, but <laughs> I got hot sauce in my bag. I would no more have noticed that than, than the man on the moon. And uh, this food writer caught that and wrote this. There's another much uglier reason that carrying your own condiments became a major part of black American culture. While Jim Crow laws, extensively documented in print and historical record, are fairly well known, less well known are the unspoken etiquette rules for black people, largely forgotten by anyone who didn't have to live under them. During Jim Crow, black people could pick up food at establishments that served white people, but they often could not eat in them. When custom demanded that black people be served separately from whites, they were often, <clears throat> excuse me, they were often required to have their own utensils, serving dishes, and condiments. So it was, it was customary for black families who were traveling to carry everything they might possibly need so that they could navigate America in relative comfort. And what this writer's touching on is, and, and there's so many different versions of this, of this, the sort of crazy logic or illogic of segregation in the Jim Crow era. Like in this case, it's okay for black hands to prepare and cook food for white people and to serve food to white people and take the food away and clean all the utensils for white people. But you can't eat together. There's version after version after version of that. Like, I can take care of your baby more than you take care of your baby, but then, like, our babies can't be together. This is, and that's just an American version of something that you'll find throughout history and across cultural lines, and that is that food can unite and food can divide. Food can be a way that we come together around the same thing and we meet as equals. And it can be a way that we maintain distinctions between us through food. 
And I want to jump back into this passage because obviously food is going to be important here. But I want you to think about something that Jesus prayed. And it's the night that he was arrested and taken into custody and then crucified the next day. And he prays this right before he's arrested. We actually studied this passage last last summer at Downtown Prez. Jesus just pours out his heart in these prayers. One of the things that he asks for is, Lord... My, my servants, you know, my, my disciples, these apostles, I'm going to send them out. And I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Protect them and let them spread the good news about me. And other people are going to come to believe in me through their message. And then Jesus asks his father for this. Make them one. Like He could have been praying for anything at that point. This is almost the crucifixion. And it's a big deal that he prays for, Lord, make all the people who believe in me one. And if you want to know, like, how, this is horrible grammar, how one, how much one, he says, make them one as we are one. As God the Father and God the Son are one, make the Christians one. Boy, that's not what life looks like. And so I want, to, I want to use that as sort of a lens to look at this passage and to think about oneness of God's people. And let's look at it this way, just two points. Oneness is concrete. In other words, it's not an abstraction. It's not just like an idea. Oneness is concrete and oneness is hard. Oneness is concrete and oneness is hard. Oneness is concrete. Let me give you context for the vision and the vision, and then let's try to think about the meaning of the vision, because there's this weird vision. I was talking to somebody on the phone this week, and I said, oh, man, I got my work cut out for me. There's a trance, there's visions, there's angels, there's heaven, there's God talking to people audibly, and I think I would just lay all my cards on the table and say, the scriptures are riddled with the supernatural, so let's let them be what they are. We're kind of the minority in the world that has a problem with that. Most of the world doesn't. But it's all through here. All right, you've got, here's the context. You've got a book called Acts, written by Luke. And I know I've already said this, but just set it up again. At the beginning of the book, uh, the book, the book, the book. I think I put an umlaut over that U just now uh, and and didn't really intend to because I don't speak German. At the beginning of the book, Jesus, risen from the dead, is talking to the apostles. And he says to them, Take this good news. You'll be my witnesses of me and this good news here in Jerusalem and then right around us in Judea and then the neighboring area, Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. So, and this is in the prophets. It's in the Psalms. Did you notice the call to worship this morning? This was not a coincidence where it says, let all the peoples praise you. People in the singular in Psalms means Israel. The people. The peoples are all the other nations. The peoples are the Gentiles. And right there, and this is all through Psalms, embedded in Psalms, let all the nations, all the people groups, let them all praise you and worship you and sing for joy. So that's, that's not new information. And that's beginning to happen. We've already seen in our study, like the conversion of a Gentile. So then you get this vision. The vision is... Peter goes up on the rooftop. It's a hot part of the day, but Caesarea is by the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And so there might have been some really great sea breezes up there in a beautiful time. 
He's hungry. Food's being prepared. So he's hungry and he goes up there and he goes into a trance. And in this vision, there's a sheet that it doesn't just appear. It comes down from heaven. And on that sheet is every kind of animal. That, those groupings, this sounds like uh, God describing the animals that went on, on the ark. It's just, it's all the animals. The reptiles, birds, crawling animals, all the animals. He sees it. And God audibly says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no. And not to make too big a deal of this, this is at least the third time Peter does this in the New Testament. Where the Lord says to him, do something. He goes, no, 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 you don't get it. If God audibly says something to you, I, I would go with yes, sir would be a great thing. And of course, I'm laughing at us because God does talk to us and we don't say yes, sir. But when, uh, when Jesus said, I'm, the son of man's going to go and be crucified, he said, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm going to wash your feet. You can't wash my feet. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. No, no, I've never done that. Because of why? Because of his devout Jewish upbringing and keeping the kosher laws. And by the way, the kosher laws aren't just the animals that you do and don't eat. It's the preparation it's who has put their hands on the food. It's, the, it's, it's extensive. So, Lord, I've always abided by that. And then God says, don't call unclean. Don't call common what I've made clean. Now, that would be, that would be a life-altering experience for that to happen once. He has the same vision three different times. What does it mean? I mean, I, I think everybody can pick up, okay, it's something to do with the world is changing and Christians aren't just people that grew up Jewish anymore and that's spreading. So do the snakes and the crocodiles and the deer and the dogs and the cows and the birds, do they represent the Gentiles? Well, that doesn't seem to make sense because he says kill them and eat them. So what does it mean? Well, that's what the rest of the world eats. Like if you've watched these, there's so many food, different food channels and shows about eating food. And you've watched enough of those shows from other countries. People will eat anything. Anything. They probably feel that about the stuff that we eat and we feel it about the stuff that they eat. I might be going to Vietnam this fall and I'm already thinking about, oh, Anything could happen, you know, at mealtime. I don't know. Maybe they feel that when they come over to the United States. But that is the food of the rest of the world. You have my God-given permission now to eat anything. Why is that so important? Think about it this way. If, you know, I, I just, I got curious thinking about food this week and eating and how food either connects us or divides us. And so, I, just out of curiosity, I googled uh, one spouse vegan, one not. Just to see what would happen. Oh, man, hits all over the place. Articles, comment boards, all that kind of stuff. And apparently, this is a big deal where you've got one spouse that they've bought in with the vegan thing, one hasn't. And how it affects their relationship. And people wrote about their own experience about sometimes we can't be at the table together because he's already made his and I'm prepping mine over here and we just sort of end up not eating together and not having that time together. And people wrote about 
attitudes. Because if you've got a vegan and a non-vegan, even if they're married, you can have two people sitting there eating, looking at each other, and both of them are thinking about the other person. Boy, did you make the dumb choice on this one. So there can be a self-righteousness about it. Attitude problem, besides just the, the social connection problem. Think about this. If God had not sent this vision, and here's Peter with his Jewish upbringing, and I'm not picking on him. He's just the man God used. And you were told, go and spread the gospel all over the world. And you've gotten that, okay, and it doesn't have to just be ethnically Jewish people. It can be anybody in the world, Gentile, Jew, whatever. Probably your default mode, and I would say almost certainly your default mode would be, okay, you're a Gentile. You've grown up eating unclean food. You eat snakes and things like that. You've grown up worshiping other deities. So I'm going to tell you the good news about Jesus. And then if you believe, praise the Lord. And we're brothers now. And then what happens at mealtime? Okay, the best case scenario probably would be, since we're brothers now, you can come into my house and eat. And where what would happen? I will set the terms for what we eat. But when God sent that vision, what was he communicating? You can go now into anyone's home and you can eat anything that they put in front of you. You can do that in the name of brotherhood and sisterhood with those who come to believe in Jesus. You can do that in the name of taking the gospel into that home. But food connects or food divides. And it's God saying, I don't want food to divide those who don't know me and those who do know me anymore. L- listen to this. There's a, uh, and this is, I, I'd recommend this book to you. It's short. Uh, it's an enjoyable read. It's an encouraging read. It's called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. And it's about the theme of food all through the Gospel of Luke. Luke volume 1. Food is a huge theme in the Gospel of Luke. Listen to what Tim Chester says. Now, he's referring to what I'm teaching on in officer training tonight, justification. And that's the Bible word for how do I know that I'm right with God? How do I know that I'm right with him? That when I die, I go to be with him and I know that my sins are forgiven. Listen to this. Our meals express our doctrine of justification. It's possible to articulate an orthodox doctrine of justification by faith but communicate through your meals a doctrine of justification by works. Do you get what he's saying? Like when when different races, and I'm not just going to speak in the past tense, because it's easy to kind of throw rocks at slavery or Jim Crow or segregation, not just when American Bible-believing Christians didn't eat together, When American Bible-believing Christians don't eat together, what signals do we send about ourselves? That there are things at stake that are way more ultimate than Jesus. And what you've got the New Testament saying in no uncertain terms is nothing and no one is more ultimate than Jesus. So we show our cards with our food. And God sends this bizarre vision three different times to say, I want that to stop. No more barriers.
Oneness is concrete. It's visible. It's sensory. It's not just an idea. And oneness is hard. And I'll try to be brief on this. Think about what you've got here. Peter is at the house of a tanner. What does a tanner do? Prepares, hides, makes leather. That's already kind of a step in the right direction. Because if you grew up kosher, you might think, man, who knows what kind of yuck and gore that guy's been dealing with and if he's going to handle our food. But you know what? Peter was okay with it. And so he goes to stay with the tanner. And then he has this vision. Okay, we just talked about that. And uh, so then it says that these men walk up. God just brings all these circumstances together. And they say that this, this centurion, he's a Roman. He's a God-fearer. If you don't know what that means, it means he's a Gentile, not circumcised, but believes in the one true God. He hasn't become a Jew, but he acknowledges that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. Worships him. And is friendly to the Jews. This man named Cornelius, he's a centurion. He sent us, he sent, uh, us to, to you. And so it says that Peter invites the men as guests. Now, these are all steps in the right direction. Now, I'm going to zoom the camera out from this passage about what happens in the rest of the chapter. And I hope you'll read it. Because in the rest of Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. And he shares the good news of Jesus Christ with Cornelius and everyone who's there. And they believe, all Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit is poured out. And they speak in tongues. Now, it's not necessarily saying that's going to be what happens when everyone becomes a Christian. But this is so unique. This is so special. God is saying audibly, visibly, they have been filled with the same Holy Spirit that happened at Pentecost. They are followers of the Messiah. They are in the kingdom of God. Speak in tongues, full of the Holy Spirit. They get baptized uh, Peter, later in the book of Acts, he gets up and says, this is what needed to happen. It fulfilled the prophecy. So you're thinking, all right, slam dunk. Peter got it, right? right? Look below the passage at this part in italics. And this is from one of Paul's letters. And he's going to call Peter Cephas. That's one of his names. And here's what he said happened later. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Those were people who did grow up ethnically Jewish, did believe in Jesus, but they said, You got to believe in Jesus. And you must be circumcised if you're a man. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And if, you're, if you've never read that and you're thinking... Did an apostle just rebuke an apostle? He sure did. And I want this to be really clear in our minds. Why did Paul rebuke Peter? Did Paul rebuke Peter for something Peter taught? Paul rebuked Peter for how he ate. For his eating. That you were eating the way God wants us to eat. 
no barriers with anybody, and you stepped back into the barriers. You put barriers back in between you and the Gentiles. Why did you do that? You know, last week, last Sunday, we finished the service by singing Amazing Grace. And that's arguably the, the most famous English hymn in the world. And it's by John Newton. And John Newton was a wonderful man. This past week, I was talking to, to, to one of you, and I photocopied a letter in a book by John Newton because it's just so wise and pastoral. And, and one of you emailed me back and said, man, I, I read that letter and reread that letter. He was a wonderful man. He, when he was converted, he, he worked in the slave trade. So when God opened his eyes and gave him saving faith, he immediately stopped that, right? And here's what he writes about it. He says, this is in sort of an autobiography. He says, the reader may perhaps wonder, as I now do myself, that knowing the state of this vile traffic, I did not at the time start with horror, you know, re- recoil with horror at my own employment as an agent promoting it. And this next sentence is so insightful. He says about himself, Custom, example, and interest blinded my eyes. Custom. They've just always been slaves. There's always been a slave trade. Example. I know fine Christian men and women who have slaves, make use of slaves. I know Christians involved in the slave trade. So, I mean, no, it's not ideal. I hope it goes away one day. But I don't have to really be proactive to do something about it. And he says, now I look back at that and I just wince. That I should have known better. God's word should have been clear enough. But custom and example. Man, custom and example are tough. There's, custom and example can be so loud that it's louder than God's voice. Like God sent Peter a supernatural vision three different times and spoke audibly. And when his old Jewish friends showed up and he felt their peer pressure, that peer pressure was louder than God's voice. And I hope that we can be sympathetic or empathetic with him because you know what? God says all kinds of things to us just as clear as clear could be. And custom and example drown out his voice. It's hard to be one. Hard to be one. Man, I I grew up across the street from a convenience store in my kind of middle school years, and I remember at this, in this convenience store, this is Mississippi, usually there was a big jar on the counter, and um, it, it, it might have things like pickled pig's ears, like a, the severed ear of a pig where you can still see the hair on it, and people would purchase these to eat. <laughs> right now at the age... They weren't, they weren't novelty pieces. At the age of 49, if somebody said, Brian, right now, just need you to do this, eat one pickled pig's ear, I would have to overcome incredible things inside of myself. <laughs> Emotionally, physically, psychologically, to do that. If you'd grown up with a kosher food system, even if it's God saying to you, kill that reptile and eat it, ooh. it would go against every preference, norm, habit, custom, example you had ever seen. Would you say that's the greatest food barrier that's ever been overcome? What Peter had to overcome? 
Is the greatest food barrier for blacks and whites to eat together? The greatest food barrier in the world is God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, becoming a fetus and a toddler and a young man and a man so that he could not just lob information at us and say, here's the data that you need to be saved, but to be with us and even eat with us. In his parables, that he would even depict heaven and bliss and eternity in terms of a feast where we are together and Abraham's there and the east and the west people are there. We're all gathered together at the same feast and mean it. We do this every week. And when we do this, it's not pretend. This is not grown-up pretend. This is God-given. Jesus Christ saying, I'm physically at the right hand of the Father, but by my Spirit, I am with you at the table when you eat and drink by faith and you remember me. You eat together, and I'm with you. For God to become a kid in Nazareth and a young man in Nazareth and not walk around and go, man, this town is lame. This town is the worst. I had bliss and archangels and gold and the presence of my father. And look at this place. Lived like a local. Went to the local synagogue. Ate the local food. Loved his people. I'm going to end here. Throughout Luke and Acts, God works in people's lives when they're praying. As we talk about these things, if you are praying about them, is God putting someone on your heart? And you're thinking, how do I engage this person that God is putting on my heart? Before we begin with info or presentation or even bringing them to church, could you eat with that person? If half this room, in this one service, in the name of Jesus Christ, ate with a Christian who looks or sounds or lives differently than you do, that would probably be historically significant for the city of Greenville. If we did that, if half this room did that in the next two weeks, that would be significant for the kingdom of God. The barriers are within us. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pray and pray that we can be a conduit of good news and not set all the terms. That we can be a conduit of good news and not just lob information at people, but give off to them, I don't want to be with you, I don't want to relate to you, I'm not your equal. But to come alongside people and be able to say, me too, and I've got great news. Let's pray that. Father, thank you for your patience with our, our bad customs, our bad examples, our bad habits and our bad default modes. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for Jesus who shows us what love, breaking down barriers, crossing over barriers looks like. Please help us to 
see food and meals as witness and outreach, connection, and celebration. We ask this in His name. Amen.